The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to them, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our, amps are, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. This is a difficult passage in a difficult section of Matthew. How do we approach these difficult passages? You know, at first glance, this seems to be a lesson of exclusion and of works. It's contrary to the theology of grace. What do we do when a passage of our reading comes into conflict with our understanding of God and his story? Do we just disregard this passage and say, no, it must be a mistake? Or do we disregard our theology and say, no, we got to change everything? Or perhaps we just throw our hands up and say, I don't know what to do. Or perhaps, perhaps we dive deeper into how we are reading. So as we dive deeper into this difficult passage in a difficult section, I think the first thing we have to do is recognize that there's a cultural reference here that is lost. There is a reference to first century Jewish weddings that we don't know. And even looking through the scholarship on what was going on, they don't know. You get all kinds of stories that support a theology that they preconceive and say, well, if this is true, then the weddings must have looked like this. But we don't know that. So there's a portion of this that is just lost to us because we're not in first century Jerusalem. But we do know where this passage belongs within the bigger gospel that Matthew provides for us. Remember, Matthew's gospel is written to a Jewish community who has accepted Jesus as Messiah. They're there in the mid to late first century, wrestling with what it means to follow the Messiah and remain in their culture and in their synagogues. So the purpose of Matthew's gospel is to place the story of Jesus within the context of the story of Israel. He begins, these are the generations of Jesus. Then he places Torah within the ministry of Jesus. Jesus summarizes Torah in what we call the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with 
everything that you are and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then Matthew works to place the church into the continuing story of God's people through the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Therefore, in all of your going about, make disciples of people from all nations, teaching them everything that Jesus taught and baptizing them into the life of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And behold, Jesus will be with us even to the end of the age. So we see two of those things at work in this section. Jesus talking about the end of the age and the teaching. Indeed, this is the fifth discourse within the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew structures his Gospel around five extended teachings of Jesus with the ministry of Jesus demonstrating how to do those things. We had the teaching on ethics that we call the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching on mission as he sends it out to 12, the teaching on the nature of the kingdom in the parable, and then the teaching about the community of the kingdom. And now we're in the fifth discourse, the teaching on the coming kingdom and the judgment. This discourse has kind of a soft start. I think it begins an introduction as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he teaches in the temple. That's where we've been walking for the past several weeks. And then he has this great soliloquy as he turns and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He describes the woes of those who think they follow God, but instead follow themselves. And then he laments over Jerusalem. And then the disciples come and they say, Lord, look at how pretty the temple is. And then Jesus sits down with them, likely on Mount Olivet, overlooking Jerusalem, looking at the temple. And it describes, in an apocalyptic vision, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. It's worth taking a step outside for a moment and, and looking at what this apocalyptic vision looks like. In Jewish literature, the apocalyptic vision apocalyptic story tells of a heavenly being coming down and revealing to the listener the way that the temporal experience relates to the cosmic battle. And so in images of the cosmic battle, we find our own self. And that's why we can see in the apocalypse of Daniel, we can see it occurring several times because while history doesn't repeat itself, we fall into the same stupid patterns as people. And so we see ourselves in this apocalyptic vision. We see an apocalyptic vision as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says, Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against the things of this temporal existence. Our battle is against powers and principalities, the cosmic forces of this current darkness and the evil forces in the heavenlies. And our battle is far bigger than what we can see. We see that in the beautiful apocalyptic vision that we sang of the six-winged seraph and cherubim failing their faces before the throne of God, the rank on rank of heavenly hosts. 
Jesus tells what the end of the age will be like. And then he warns them, you don't know when it's going to come. So stay alert. Be watchful. As a servant whose master goes away and places him in charge, the master may come back at any time. Beware that you're doing the master's business. And then we come to the first of three parables. That's the parable that we're in today. It's a parable in the context of apocalypse. Remember we said that parables were these image-rich stories that allow us to see ourselves in the story of God. So we have an image-rich way of placing our temporal experience into a heavenly perspective. Specifically, a perspective on waiting. So let's look at a few of these images. Ten maidens waiting for the bridegroom. The wedding imagery of God and his people spans throughout the Bible, whether it's talking about Israel or the church. We have Solomon's great story, the Song of Songs, as he talks about the relationship between God and Israel, like the relationship between a groom and a bride. We have Hosea and the way that God compares the, faithful, the faithlessness of Israel to the faithlessness of Hosea's wife. We have Paul again in that vision of the church as the bride of Christ in Ephesians. And then we have the wedding banquet as a symbol of participation in the kingdom. Jesus uses this repeatedly in the parables, the parable of the wedding guests and the parable today. We see in Revelation, in John's apocalyptic vision, those invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb rejoicing. We see ourselves participating in that wedding feast at this very table each week. So we have the wedding imagery that underlies this parable. And then we have ten maidens waiting for the bridegroom. Ten evokes in the Jewish memory the Torah and the Ten Commandments. The ten fingers of the hands of God that worked in creation. We don't want to squeeze this one too hard and try to tease out which five are wise and which five are foolish as we look at the law and the prophets. But what we do see is that some are wise and feast with the Messiah and some are foolish and do not. I think this is a message to Matthew's community about the choice of some of their brethren, some of those called by the law to be the people of God who turn away and refuse to feast with the Messiah. And then we have the lamps and the oil. Jesus has talked about the sacrilege of desolation appearing in the temple. The vision of Daniel, the vision that inspired Judas Maccabee to revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And the story that we read about about 200 years before Jesus in Maccabees. And as they threw Antiochus Epiphanes out of the temple, as they tore down the statue of Zeus that he had erected, as they cleansed and rebuilt the altar on which he had sacrificed pigs, they came and were going to rededicate 
on the 25th day of Kislev, the day that Nehemiah dedicated the temple. They come and there's but one jar of consecrated oil for the eight-day festival. It would not be enough. They had one day's worth to last eight days, but they were faithful. And they poured the oil into the menorah. They lit it. And it miraculously burned for eight days. This is the celebration, the festival of lights, the festival of dedication, Hanukkah. I think this would have been in the minds of those who heard Jesus as he had talked about the coming age, as he had talked about the temple, as he had talked about the sacrilege of desolation, sitting where it should not be. And we have lamps. So what is the foolishness of the five as we think with this in image in our background? Is it that they didn't bring oil or that they did not have faith that the oil that they had would last in the presence of a holy God? Is it that they were going out not to the priest and the consecrated oil, but to the vendors in the streets to bring common oil for themselves? It's a degree of idolatry, that theme that we followed through Matthew of casting away our idols. Perhaps it's simply that they did not recognize the enoughness of the kingdom, the enoughness of Torah, the enoughness of the love of God that we carry out to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the wise are those who recognize the bridegroom and join the feast. We also have an image, a looking back image at the first discourse of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus calls us not to hide our lamp, but to set it high on a stand and let our light shine before others. These are some of the images in this parable. But there's one image that bothers me just a little bit. The refusal of the wise to share their oil. God is enough. Why do they not have faith to share their oil? Perhaps it's simply a call to steadfastness, to not allow others to tempt us into diluting the holiness that God has given us. Perhaps as I look around me today, as I look at, at my brothers in ministry and the amount of burnout that I see, perhaps this is a call to self-care, a call to recognize that if I'm going to burn a lamp, I have to have oil, a call to guard the margin that allows us to have sufficient sleep, time for prayer and silence, a Sabbath day in a retreat in solitude. I don't know, what does it mean to you that the wise bring their oil and they keep it to serve the bridegroom? So what can we take away from this parable in the context? I look at the words that Jesus uses 
bridegroom as the foolish ones come back after the doors are closed and they knock. He says, I do not know you. I do not know who you are. We'll explore this knowing and being known over the next couple of weeks as we move on to the parable of the talent and the vision of the judgment in heaven. Knowing and being known. The wise are known and the foolish do not allow themselves to be known by Christ. The second takeaway, watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour when Christ will return. This is great preparation as we begin Advent in about three weeks. The time of waiting, the time of watching. A call to remain watchful for that great and glorious day when Christ will return. A call to watch in our own lives apocalyptically. To watch for the revelation of the eternal now in our very present and temporal existence. To watch for the ways that we enter into and manifest the kingdom of God that was and is and evermore shall be. So watch. Watch and come to the feast of this table. Come, whether you have much oil or whether you have little. Come trusting in the goodness and enoughness of God. Come and be known. And then go. Go watching for the ways in which you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Do not be a people who light a lamp and put it under a basket. But put your light up on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. And in that same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.